I'm Tim Crosby, and welcome to episode 37 of Down the Track. Ron Whip, you're on board once again? Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, we're here again, Tim, and um, we've gone big with our with our guests again. We've had a pretty solid lineup the last few weeks, um, and we're trying to cover as many of the different angles of the sport as possible. So we've managed to get uh, Mark Arbib to give us a bit of his time today, uh, and Mark is the current president of Athletics Australia. So the, the very top of the tree. Welcome along, Mark. Hi, Tim. Hi, Sean. Good to be here. Excellent. All right. So lots to talk about, Mark. It's going to be intriguing conversation, uh, getting to know you and what you do. And uh, we'll uh, get into that shortly. So this is episode 37, Down the Track. Okay, Mark Abib, President Athletics Australia. What does that really mean? What does that entail? Uh, so uh, I am chair of the Athletics Australia Board. Uh, we've got board members who are elected by our state bodies. Um, we have a federated system. So Athletics Australia works with our state member associations to deliver um, all the different types of athletics, whether it's track and field, whether it's road running, whether it's cross country, uh, we deliver those products and those programs across the country. Um, we receive a great deal of our funding from government in terms of high performance and participation. And at the same time, we go into um, the commercial sphere and try and raise funds for sponsorship and commercial to try and grow the sport. Um, the, the number one goal of Athletics Australia is to become the largest participation sport in the country. And that's something that our board is deeply committed to. So I've got the honour and the, the privilege, I guess, to to um, be supporting our management team as the as the, the president, um, which is run by Darren Gosher, the CEO, and they they run the sport on a day to day basis. Our board meets um, quarterly, and we set the strategy for the sport, and we um, I guess monitor the implementation that management are taking. So that's a in, in a nutshell. Very nice little nutshell. You personally, you're a senator from uh, 2008 to 2012, and during that time, you also had the Ministry of Sport. That must have been a pretty exciting time in your career. Yeah, it was. It was great, and I mean, for me, I know how important sport's been in my life, and uh, I know the friendships I've made and the the different characteristics I've learnt from sport. And I just was happy to, to really get involved in the local community projects and just ensuring that different groups have access to sport and sporting facilities and um, the programs. So working with Sport Australia, um, it was you know it was a privilege to be able to ensure that you know Indigenous groups, um, groups from non-English speaking backgrounds, um, lower economic advantage. They had access to the best facilities possible and the best programs, and that was something that I, I really, really enjoyed doing as sports minister. You know, in, in the end, in the end, you get to see some incredible things as sports minister. But really, the if you if you love sport and you understand how it can it can change and improve people's lives, um, then that's that's I guess the, the best part about it, and that was something that I'll cherish and I'll always remember. One of the interesting little gigs you had on that was working with the World Anti-Doping Foundation Board. So do you want to explain that one a little bit? Yeah, so um, that, was, that was quite, I mean, we, we did a lot of work in, in my time as minister around um, sport integrity. And we did a great deal of work on um, match fixing and we were able to put in place a national match fixing policy, a policy that has been um, supported by all states and is really the backbone now of integrity in terms of sport in Australia. And one of the areas that um, we were very active in is anti-doping and the Australian um, government is lucky to have a representative on the World Anti-Doping Authority. Um, I think it's the advisory board and that was the role I had. So I was able to keep up to date with um, a lot of the activities and understand the work that WADA undertook and also I, I spent some time and went down and, and spent time with ASADA, the Australian body, and tried to give them as much support as possible. And, and it's a fascinating, a fascinating space 
the work that ASADA and WADA do, and it only works when they have access and are working closely with other law enforcement bodies. So, you know, the work they do with Customs and um, Border Force really gives them the intelligence they need to go after, um, I guess, the, the people who are trying to um, trying to use drugs, but also trying to make money out of the sale of drugs. And there was some, I mean, there was a fascinating figure at the time where I think um, the federal police told us there was more money in performance enhancing drugs globally than in um, recreational drugs, which, you know, it's, it's staggering when you hear that. Yeah, that, that's quite a surprising statistic actually, quite interesting. Um, you're working for Consolidated Press Holdings now. Uh, how's, how are you personally going with this whole coronavirus situation? You know, your work, your family, your, your own exercise too, because you are an yeah. avid runner. You're a you know, triathlete and a runner. So how's it all going for you? So I've been lucky to hold my job. Um, you know, this is one of those crises where, uh, you know, so many people are, are have had reduced hours or lost their lost their employment and, and it would be very tough in those circumstances. I've been very lucky that um, my job has um, been retained, um, obviously working most of my time from home. Um, that's a challenge in itself, I guess. Um, I'm lucky I've got two kids who are a bit older now and they're in their teens, so they're doing their homeschooling, but it's been just fascinating to watch them do that schooling and understand how the education system and the teachers have had to move so fast so quickly. Uh, it's been staggering to see it, and you know they're doing such a good job. The teachers on that on on, on the uh, the virtual schooling. Um, in terms of my training, yeah, it's been it's been interesting to train without having an event <laughs> in your mind. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very event focused, and I sort of always training towards an event. Now it's really just training to keep fit and to keep healthy and for enjoyment. So one, one of the things I've, I've really started doing is, is hitting the trails and looking for trails just to, um, I guess, change it up and, and make the running a bit different and try and build some strength and some agility. And it's been, it's been, a, it's been good. It's been mentally tough at times, but at the same, you know, in the same breath, um, it's been enjoyable. So, um, I, you know, I, I haven't lost anything on the running perspective. I love running. I love um, the feel of being out there and running with other people. And I guess that's the one thing you really do miss. Um, you miss the, you know, the camaraderie of your, your friendship group and your friends who you go out running with. And it's been quite solitary in, on, on many occasions. But, um, you know, lucky to be out there and, and being able to do it. Did you have a goal event, Mark, before this hit or...? You know, in place of that, have you got something you're looking at right now? Yeah, it's funny because I had I had you know a number of different events, whether it was half marathon, Sydney half marathon, you know, Blackmore's UTA, um, I had an Ironman plan, and everything's been pushed back now to September and October, and they're all in a sort of a six six week period. So I think. My dance card's pretty full in September, October now for events. I think I could do something every day for, for a month. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure. It's like, like everyone else, it's, it's, you know, policymakers and government are still working this out as they go. No one, no one has all the answers or, or any of the answers. And the virus shifts so quickly. Um, it's been so difficult working with event um, organisers and listening to the event organisers um, try and navigate this this extreme situation. So, you know, hopefully we'll be lucky enough to, to have events on in the second half of the year. Um, I'd love to see the Australian Cross Country Championships in place at the end of August. Um, you know, I think that's something that would really be the big kickoff towards the World Cross Country. But, but again, it all depends on um, where government sits and doing it safely. At the forefront of all our thinking has been the safety of our participants and spectators and officials, uh, and, and that has to remain in place until the restrictions are properly eased. Yeah, exactly right. Just want to delve into some of your other sporting experience as well, because you, you did a, a big uh, study for rugby union a few years ago, which led to quite some you know dramatic changes at the the structural uh, side of rugby union. Rugby league, uh, you're on the 
the board of the Rabbitohs. You've also been involved with Sydney FC. So quite a lot going on there, Mark. You're not with Sydney FC now, but you're still with the, the Rabbitohs, I believe. No, no, I, I haven't been with the Rabbitohs for probably 18 months now. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I love sport and I've, I've um, been in some great – served with some great boards and some great um, clubs and organisations. And I think, you know, I can bring a, I can bring a level of governance – and understanding around policy making that boards find useful and um, also you know i love grassroots sport and um, community sports so I, I really take an interest in um, participation when i'm on those boards and making sure that they're ex accessible as possible and that people with all backgrounds have, have access that's the sort of space that i like working in um, and uh, you know, with Sydney FC in particular, it was really about building the culture that led to um, the championship victories. So, you know, I look back on that time and when when I started on the board and it was a, a difficult space with major losses financially. And when I left, um, they were on the verge of winning championships and have now gone on to a great dynasty. and. You know, similar with the Rabbitohs, great club um, and great culture. And I look at my time there and, and it was it was really worthwhile. And, and they're all learning experiences. And, you know, you never stop learning in this space and you can always do things better. And, you know, I, I make plenty of mistakes, but I try and learn from the mistakes. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 been a, it's been a good ride in terms of the sports space and, and I'm loving the time in athletics. Uh, a great community grassroots sport. Yeah, Mark. Some of our um, some of our younger listeners out there as well. We often um, we often hear from athletes or or people with an interest in sport who say, "I oh, you know I'd love to be involved in sport, whether it's the event management or you know in your case some of the policy decisions." When you I guess were going through you know education and those earlier parts in your career, did you always see sport as something you were going to look to get involved in, or did the more behind the scenes I guess governance aspects sort of come through, you know, a different series of opportunities? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I always thought if I was lucky enough to work in the sports space, I mean, I'm probably like most sport administrators, you know, a failed, a failed athlete, right? <laughs> most sport most administrators are people who failed some time along. I was not good enough, at, you know, in terms of my own sporting um, pedigree, um, but I learn a lot from working. I mean, I, I was involved in surf lifesaving. I rode um, surf boats until I was um, mid-20s and at, the, at yep. sort of quite high level. And, you know, we, we weren't professional athletes, but at the same time, you know, you're training twice a day. Yeah. Um, and so very, very serious training. And, you know, when you go to the Australian Championships, you know, it's like going to the World Cup in terms of the seriousness behind it and the, yep. the way you prepare for it. Um, so, I, look, I, I, I loved being involved in sport. I never thought sports administration was going to be my, um, you know, where I would end up working. I, I really didn't have much idea what I was going to do and bounced around and, you know, I joined, the, I, I got involved in politics because I really loved Paul Keating. That was why I got involved in politics. I didn't have any other ambition. But uh, <laughs> he, he, was, he became a leader and I thought, gee, I want to join the Labor Party. Um, I believe in what he believes in, a republic and, um, you know, integrating in Asia and, and a modern economy. And that's how I got involved. So I bounced around and, and, and um, in government, I was, I was given the opportunity with sport and I guess I took it and was passionate about it. And the sports that I worked with when I was the minister recognised the passion and the, um, you know, the, what I brought to the table. And then when I left politics, there was you know, lots of different sporting organisations and community organisations that, you know, were interested in me being involved. And, I mean, it's important that the, you know, I don't get paid for any of this. Yeah. So it's not that I'm, I'm doing this for a, for a paycheck um, or ego. I do this because I actually want to give back. I love the, the sporting community. I want to give back to it. Yeah, so you sort of see it as, I guess, probably the most liberal or the, or the most direct, you know, sort of coalface approach to, to, to making some, I guess, 
to making change, I guess, because you're you're in those spaces where I guess you do have the difficult or the the, the far more complex um, problems or issues facing each sport. Exactly. If if there was, you know, there, if there was no if there was nothing to change, if it was all perfect, then I wouldn't yeah. see a, ro a role for myself. <laughs> I'd look at it as a challenge, and I look at I look for opportunities and ways to bring people together and organisations together and build, um, you know, build on on what's what's there, mm. uh, and try and position for the future. So I mean, I did that with rugby. Um, in terms of their governance review, I, I did that with Sydney FC, and, and I did that with um, the Rabbitohs. There's no, there's no you know, cookie cutter blueprint um, that does it, but I think at the heart of at the heart of all sport is participation in the grassroots, and that's where you've got to get it right. If you can get it right, the policy making right there, and put the interest of the athlete and the interest of the officials and the, the volunteers first. Then it becomes much easier after that, and I think there's 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 you know in sport there's a lot of people who put you know when you listen to when you listen to um, the the news and you put on Fox Sport or whatever you're listening to, mm. you know they talk a lot about football and a lot about the professional sports and pretty much it all starts every conversation almost starts with TV rights. Yeah. And I sort of sit in my head thinking you know what this is completely the 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 wrong way to look at a sport if you're looking at it from that space. Then, then that's a sport that's you know really is all about dollars, and mm. I think one of the one of the beauties of Olympic sports and the and um, athletics track and field is that you really start at the grassroots level, and, and you start at the participation level, and then from there, if you can grow if you can grow the pie, then all the benefits flow off the back. Yep. Yeah. Um, just want to ask the question, Mark. Athletics and why athletics? And what was the link through to coming through to the to be president of Athletics Australia? I'm, I'm an avid runner, so uh, I, I've always um, gone out and just enjoyed running. But I think when I when I was, I guess, asked to to get involved in the board, I was um, out there doing park run on a weekly basis. I had my kids involved in little athletics. Um, so from, from that perspective, I had a passion for, for the, for the running side of the sport, um, because I was deeply involved in it. Um, again, you know, frustrated, frustrated athlete, but, um, someone who, who had a passion to, to grow the sport and could see the benefit of the benefit of, um, what was happening at the community level. I mean, this is the thing about our, our sport is that, um, it just has so much potential, you know. When you when you look at the participation numbers that Sport Australia provide, um, we are by far the largest participation sport. When you include recreational running together with walking, I mean, no one comes close to us. And I, I think the latest um, data shows that we're up there and, and probably ahead of swimming now. So, you know, it's how does how do we capture um, that participation and bring bring back some of the revenue, some of the numbers into the Athletics Australia family. That's the big challenge, and that's where I mean that's where I sort of see um, my my I guess I guess the fire in me is how do we try and do that because the market is so big and we don't need to capture a lot of it. And if we do, then that will bring money in, that will bring people in. And that's money we can we can put into, and people we can put into our high performance areas to improve our results. Um, I mean, this stuff isn't rocket science. It's we need to ensure that we have the best coaches working with as many athletes as possible, um, and ensuring that those athletes have the right training environment and that have the events they need to qualify and do their best over over time. Um, you know, it's it's it's. It's not hard to conceptualise it, but there's a lot of working parts, and it takes a lot of time. And you know, it's I've been here now for over four years, and I can sort of see, see some areas that we've made progress, and some areas where we're probably are not making progress. And I want to make sure we, we continue down that path to uh, to towards getting things done. Um, so you know, it's a it's a 
it's a, it's not it's it's challenging, but it's achievable, and, and I and I enjoy the challenge. Probably one of the silver linings out of the current situation, though, Mark. I've just read a Gemba report um, looking at statistics of what people are doing uh, during COVID nineteen and. Running and walking has just skyrocketed over that time, as opposed to a lot of other sports which are less accessible, I presume, and swimming being one of those. Well, I mean, you see it everywhere. Everywhere you go, there are people out um, running, walking, um, taking their kids out for runs, walks. I mean, cycling's getting the benefits as well. Um, uh, you know, they're using now not just getting out and, and doing it, they're also doing it virtually. Um, when you look at what's happening on Strava, one of the, one of the plat- for social platforms and, and data platforms. Um, Athletics Australia has now set up the, our own Strava club and people are already flocking into that. New South Wales Athletics have a Strava club which attracted over a thousand people within a week. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's, great. it's great for exercise and for health, but also for social reasons. Um, you know, people are seeing our sport as as something that's you know adding enjoyment and and um, meaning to their life, and ho- hopefully they'll continue to do that after the uh, the crisis abates. And, and what's really important is that I think this is the most important thing for me. Um, it's very hard to convince some policymakers in Canberra and in some of the states the importance of sport and exercise to health. So we all we all you know everyone talks at talks generally about exercise and health and you, you get doctors who recommend it but it's hard to get policymakers to put big money into sporting programs because um, you know they don't deep down really believe in the the link between exercise health and um, health improvements and, and 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 sports so this is the first time where we've been able to really prove that um, sport, is an additive to health, not just physical health, but also to mental health and welfare. And we need to really push that homeless policymakers at all levels with government, because if we can do that, that will ensure that we get more funding in future for participation programs. And, um, you know, you you always see the AFL and you always see NRL and A-League with their hands out um, trying to get funding for their programs. and we do the same, but I think the COVID crisis has um, allowed will allow us to really press policymakers on the importance of community sport, and that is something that we're doing and are going to continue to do into the future. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there, Mark, and, it, and maybe this is a bit of a catalyst for this all to come together now, because um, what we're seeing is that you know traditionally the AA funding model is mainly directed to high performance, but participatory stuff, you know, is it that we should be knocking on the doors of health departments now rather than sports departments to fund what we're trying to do at that grassroots level? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we've now got a, we've now got a, you know, a live example of the importance of exercise and, and, and sport to mental health and wellbeing and physical health. And it's great to see that I mean, we've got the, the, the National Emergency Cabinet meeting today, and one of the first things on their agenda is community sport and bringing back community sport. And I know in the Northern Territory yesterday, um, they brought back um, coaching for, for a small number of athletes. So sport is at the forefront of people's minds and something that everyone um, really misses. And the link to health now is an area which is right for us to try and ensure we get the funding that we deserve. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of probably sort of should have saw more of it when I was the sports minister, but um, it would be it would be very it would be very good for sports to get more money out of the participation side um, while maintaining our high performance funding. I think we are definitely deserving of more more participation funding given the importance of participation to health outcomes yeah and i think the other key thing coming out of this is the broad brush approach that quite often when we are going for participatory funding it'll be linked to one particular demographic one group it's got to be a project about something 
but this is the entire community and can quite often there when they, that approach is taken by uh, those handing out the funding they don't realize that there are you know 50 to 60 year old men who get no funding to do anything and yet what we're seeing is this is becoming an important and a vital part of their life uh, to keep them going through this crisis so just my little getting on a, a soapbox or there I suppose through having involved been involved in funding applications but what we're seeing is this is a total community um, push, and I think that's why it's got to continue post-virus. Uh, David, if you were talking to policymakers, you'd be saying, let's say, holistic approach. Yeah. That's how that would be explained. <laughs> Use the buzz terms. All right, yeah. One, yeah, one final thing I want to talk about in this little segment, Mark, is um, you seem to have a, a strong affinity with uh, Indigenous issues as well. You. You're part of, you know, you're an ambassador for the Indigenous Marathon Project, which is a, an awesome, you know, uh, movement, you know, created by Rob D. Costello, but also with the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, so, I, look, I was, when I was a minister, I was um, the Indigenous Employment Minister as well. And I was involved with Indigenous Marathon Foundation and um, I did some work with Rob D. Costello and his team and went to New York with um, the runners the, on, I think it was the second year that they had the program in place and the program's now grown um, to, you know, I think this is its 10th year now. Uh, and it, you know, seeing that the, the benefits that it provides to communities and creating community leaders and that the health benefits that that creates off the back of it, um, you know, that, that's exactly what that's exactly what sport should do and the power of sport in community to do. And that requires governments to um, have an understanding the, of the potential of, of sport. And, you know, they've really got to go out and see those programs live because if you see it in community and, and you see the work that Rob and the IMF are doing um, on the ground, um, you, you'd never question their funding, ever question their funding because it's creating leaders who are then um, putting on their own health groups, changing nutrition, changing participation for kids, keeping kids in school. And for us, it was always about, you know, how do you keep um, these kids in school for as long as possible? Because we knew every year you could keep an Indigenous child in school, um, you, were, you were massively improving their chance of employment. Uh, and sport was one of the great mobilizers and activators to, to do that and it doesn't doesn't have to be sport it can be anything that puts the flame in the child whether it's um, music whether it's language whether it's culture whatever it is sport technology um, you know you want to use that to try and give the child give a child as much self-confidence as possible and as much purpose as possible uh, to ensure that they can reach their dreams you know, when you, when you go into an Indigenous community in, in a lot of those r really remote areas, um, you can see that many of the kids have lost that lost that sort of flicker in their, their eye. You know, the fire in their eye isn't there, and they 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 don't have a they don't have a goal, and they don't see themselves achieving anything. And you talk to their parents, and they say, well, you say, why aren't the kids at school? And they say, well, there's no jobs in the end, so why, why do I need to keep them in school? So, you know, from, from that end, I can see the good work that the Indigenous Marathon Foundation does. And there's, there's you know, there's countless organisations doing similar work. And there's, you know, there's a, a, new, a new group of um, young Indigenous leaders coming through. And in the next 10 years, we're going to wake up and say, where did these amazing young Indigenous politicians, lawyers, doctors, um, community workers come from and, and it's all happening right now um, out there and it's, it's, it's going to be fantastic in the future when, these, when this sort of cohort comes through and reach their full potential um, because it's happening now. Yeah, totally agree. I've sort of been on the you know, ground floor of this for the first 10 years and I'm really excited to see what that next 10 years produces. Okay, thanks for that, Mark. We're going to go into another segment soon where we're going to talk a little bit more about AA, but this has been a really enlightening uh, little conversation about you and what you've been involved in. It's a rich history that you've already got, but no doubt there's a lot more to come from you in the future as well. 
So, Mark, through the virus, obviously the AA operating model has had to change slightly with you know, staff working from home. The board would still be uh, doing its stuff. They'd be communicating via uh, Darren Gosher. Uh, so what have you got to say? You know, how are things working with Athletics Australia right now? So the management team is working from home and Darren Gosher has, our CEO has his daily meetings um, with staff over the net. And I know they've got a senior leadership team who is meeting regularly and um, he conducts meetings with the state CEOs. So people should always keep in their mind that, you know, we're a federated organisation and in each state there's a um, management team. So Darren works with those management teams uh, to try and ensure that people are as lined as possible and to ensure that um, those states are getting as much information as possible from the, I guess, from the, the federal body. Um, the, the, the Athletics Australia Board has been meeting, um, obviously, teleconferencing and using, um, I think it's Zoom or Microsoft, one of the Microsoft platforms. Uh, and, and there's been a, a great deal of meetings of our finance committee because one of the biggest issues that all sports face is the financial implications of uh, the, the, COVID, the COVID crisis. So um, that finance committee has been meeting very regularly to go through forward plans and um, understand what the financial implications are on the sport. Um, if the, if the, the, I guess, restrictions last three months, six months, or go into next year. And, and I know that's something that all the state boards and managements have also been working on, and, and that's probably one of the, the really most challenging areas for all of us. Yeah, it is challenging time. So, you know, things like the Olympics and the, the rescheduling, that's obviously had a major impact on the high-performance area. Uh, absolutely. I mean, like, the first impact is on the athletes and the coaches and the families who, um, you know, in terms of their own welfare and their own thinking have had to readjust their own lives. They thought right now they'd be um, almost on on the plane soon, and, and now they're having to um, adjust to a, a new a new um, qualification period, a new training regime, and that's not easy. So our high performance team's been um, communicating as much as possible and in contact as much as possible with our athletes, trying to ensure that they. Um, you know, I guess see this as an opportunity rather than than a, a challenge, and um, that work continues on a day to day basis. And there are some people um, who, you know, obviously depending on where you are in your program, who will, will see this in a very positive light. Others who obviously are, are in a different state, and, and our our HP and coaches have to deal with people individually. They can't put a you know, a broad brush to it. They've got to deal with people on their own individual state of mind and their own perspectives and experiences. Yeah, and it leads forward to to, to the uh, World Championships in 2022 and also the Commonwealth Games. We did have a good conversation with Steve Modigetti about this and he was pondering, you know, <laughs> some of the choices that uh, athletes are going to have to make during this period. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm, I'm having the same, the same thinking process. Everyone's... Um, having to come to terms with it. And I think there'll be some tough decisions that a lot of athletes have to make. Um, we'll be doing as much as possible to give athletes as much opportunity to compete in both events. Um, but for some, it's just not gonna be, it's just not gonna be feasible. So we'll, we'll have to be, we'll have to adapt to that, be as flexible as we can with athletes um, inside the funding, the funding um, envelopes and, um, give them as much preparation support uh, and training environment support as possible. And, and remembering here, I mean, when we talk about our HP team, our high performance team, there's the, you know, the, the, the names you hear all the time, like Christian Malcolm and, and um, Andrew Fakeney. But at the same time as that, we work with the state institutes. So um, they're, our, they're our main partners and, and support Australia at the AIS. So, we will work closely with them and the Commonwealth Games um, Federation to ensure that we give our athletes as much opportunity and, and support as possible. 
Sorry, Tim. Um, there's, there's been some chat, I guess, in the media for all sports, particularly Olympic sports, the, the notion that this post-COVID era uh, might change or might alter, whether for positive or negative ways, um, the way in which maybe sport is funded or the way in which it's assessed for funding. Um, how, do you, how do you think something like that might affect athletics? It's, it's too hard to tell at the moment what it, what it means. Talking to Sport Australia, though, um, I, I don't see any any major change on the horizon around high performance funding. Uh, you know, the Sport Australia are, have given us great flexibility over the last sort of month and a half in terms of our funding yep. to ensure that we can go forward financially in a secure position. Um, but at the same time, Sport Australia are quite strict in terms of the way we spend taxpayers' funds mm. and around high performance, it is quite regimented in terms of the funding and the approvals and the reporting. And I, I think that will continue. Where the change um, may come is on the participation side and the hope would be that you know, the, the government ministers and senior bureaucrats Get the get the message on the importance of our sporting programs to the health of Australians, and that we can increase the increase those sort of participation programs um, to and increase the I guess the quantum of the funding we receive. Yeah. Especially given that Athletics Australia is the largest participation. I mean, we are the largest participation sport. Athletics is. Mm. So, and we are the the body ourselves and our state our state counterparts are the body that deliver um, the programs so you would you would hope that our our organizations can benefit in future from that sort of funding exactly well one of the good things I'm seeing coming out of this time as well is the increased activity around target talent programs across the country too so with, I think the the message there is trying to keep engaging the younger um, elites sub elites and keeping giving them a reason to keep doing what they're doing. Well, I know the states put a lot of, a lot, a lot of time thinking into those um, programs and they do a good job of it. So, you know, we need to keep growing those um, targeted talent programs and ensuring that, that we're giving as much opportunity as possible. And I think, you know, one of, it's not, not directly connected, but one of the areas where Athletics Australia is working on junior development is with um, Little Athletics. I mean, the work we're doing with One Athletics and trying to provide one merged national body, hopefully in future will help to provide a transit, you know, a better transition from little athletics into the, the senior organisations and keeping more more talent in the sport um, for as long as possible, giving, giving teenagers a love of athletics for life. You know, the best way to improve our, our results at the the Olympic Games or the Commonwealth Games is to grow our participation, and increase the size of our increase the size of our our talent pool. Um, we're a small country, you know, um, people-wise, and we need to have more people doing our sport with the best coaches possible. Um, that's the that's the talent equation, and those sort of programs provide the coaching and support um, we need. And we've just got to keep bringing those kids through and teenagers through, and, and keeping them involved in the sport. Yeah, and that was, that was, I guess, when one sport, um, the concept was mentioned, um, I guess, relatively recently. That, I guess that was seen by a lot of us who've been in the sport for a while as a, as a pretty bold move by both Little Athletics Australia and Athletics Australia. Um, has that been something that's sort of been moving along, I guess, with the laps in events? Or, or I guess, you know, has there been a bit much going on at the moment with all the, I guess, you know, clashing day-by-day um, -day changes? Um to, to sort of, I guess, progress on that? Like, is there an update available on the ones? Yeah, no, that, that's good. I can give you an update on, on one athletics. <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I was so, like, I don't know how I phrase that, but that was right. <laughs> <laughs> so behind the scenes, there's a huge amount of work going on um, at the management committee level. There's a governance committee, there's a management team all working to, you know, working on how to merge the organisation 
organisationally and what it looks like and the, the plan and how you'd select the CEO and um, the strategy and this, you know, there's a million different pieces of work behind it. And that's just for a federal merger. And, you know, we've had very good support from Sport Australia and, and even Steve monaghetti has been involved on the Sport Australia level. So those meetings have been continuing and they're very productive and very um, positive. And the work that um, Andrew Pry's done at, from Little Athletics has been, has been fantastic. Fantastic, brilliant. You couldn't ask for more from, um, from the, the National Little Athletics Body. The, the only, the only um, issue we've, we've had is, is given um, it, it's impossible to travel and most, most of our state organisations are, are, it's necessary that their boards focus just on the financial viability yeah. of, of the, the times we have pushed back the, the merger vote to next year. So there, there is not going to be a merger vote this year. The process, One Athletics, continues at pace, but um, hopefully when, the, um, when restrictions start falling away, we'll, we'll start the, I guess, the, um, the sessions again, the community sessions with the, with the organisations and get going and then the merger will be next year. That's when we'd be proposing it. So it gives us a bit more space and a bit more time to, to, to nail down some of the issues. But from an in intention perspective, um, the two organisations have never worked better together. So it's, you know, it's, it's a big positive. Just another question on planning. You did mention the National Cross Country in August, which I think is going across to South Australia. Have AA been plotting other dates and other events, like going through the summer calendar and looking at track classics or nationals or rescheduled nationals? Is that part of the uh, the process at the moment, Mark? Yes. So they're across the board. They're having a look at the a, a new calendar for the end of the year and um, the qualifying period. Now we know that the qualifying period starts on the first of December, and we know that athletes are going to want to turn up and, and race hard to try and qualify for the for the Olympic Games and the Para Games. Um, so yes, a lot of work is being done by our high performance team. They're in discussions um, constantly with Oceania Athletics to try and work through um, the, the events that are going to be required and the, the events that are going to give our athletes the best opportunities to, to qualify. Of course, they're talking to the states because a lot of the events that get put on are run by our state um, colleagues. And we're also in contact with New Zealand athletics because we, if the travel restrictions um, are, are reduced for trans-Tasman travel, then that will give us opportunities to I guess, put on events with Athletics New Zealand and ensure that our athletes are getting access to their events and vice versa to give ourselves and them as much opportunity for qualification as possible. So it's still, I mean, there's a lot of work left to be done here, but this is work that is going on around the clock. And, and as soon as we as soon as soon we can nail it down, then we'll, we'll get that communication out to, to, to our athletes and coaches and, and, and officials. It's just, again, you're dealing with, changes in policy making on an hourly basis so it's 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 very difficult being definitive at the moment awesome some great responses there mark and it's good to hear that look you know, the world of athletics is is actually moving along at a quite a rapid rate despite what's going on we'll have a little break now but the next big topic i want to move on to will be bathurst 2021 so Australia's first major international competition for many, many years is going to take place March 2021 in Bathurst. Mark Arbib, New South Wales-based politician and worker and Athletics Australia president, big question, why Bathurst? Why not Bathurst? Bathurst is a great city, um, large population, uh, beautiful part of regional Australia and has great infrastructure great sporting infrastructure. It's a city that knows on how, knows how to put on big events. And every year it has the, the major um, supercar race. Um, it's part of the, I guess, our rich tapestry of sport. And when we sat down to bid for the um, World Cross Country with World Athletics, 
Um, the feedback we were getting from World Athletics was that they wanted a more extreme course, that they wanted to really see athletes tested. They didn't want people running around a, you know, a race course. They wanted um, athletes tested on a, on a difficult course. And um, when you put on events like this, you need to work with state governments and um, working with, we, we spoke to governments across the country to try and um, to try and encourage their support for a bid for the World Cross Country. At that stage, the New South Wales government was talking about bidding for, I think it was maybe 10 world championships and we're able to um, put ourselves in a position to work with them on, on that proposal. And part of that was identifying um, regional areas and areas which would benefit from, um, I guess, the travel. And you know, when you're when you're putting together these sort of proposals, you need to meet criteria, and governments need to meet criteria. And Bathurst ticked all the boxes, so um, we're very happy that the Bathurst Council has been um, so eager to work with us. They they work with a number of sports, and they've been fantastic for us. And the organising committee is working hard. Um, all we need are those travel restrictions to be dropped, and um, away we go. It was interesting when the video of the or preliminary video of the course uh, was released. Uh, unfortunately, it got a little bit of a backlash because it looked like it's just running around the car park. But you know, both you and I have been there, and um, that car park's not this flat little circuit, is it? And have you walked the full course yet, Mark? Yeah, no, I, I haven't walked the course, but I know I know where the course is, and I've been up there many time in the past. And and <laughs> let me tell you, it's going to be a tough run. Um, we've had to put that course together with. World Athletics and they've come out and, and viewed, viewed the course and um, had to approve it. So um, I guess that's been done in conjunction and we think it's going to be a test, a test for all the athletes involved. And, and But at the same time, it provides um, good opportunities for spectators to view the course. And that was one of the big, one of the other big um, benefits of going to Bathurst is the, the facilities that Bathurst already has in place, um, whether it's the, the, the buildings and the spectator stands and the corporate facilities and the parking, um, by, by doing it there and where the course is, um, it's really, we can save a great deal of funds because we're not having to build um, a, a whole new complex. So Bathurst for that reason and that course for that reason provides a, a great deal of benefit and that's why it's in place. All right, putting your salesman's um, hat on now, what, how are you going to attract punters from across Australia to get there and what sort of events might the running community be able to look forward to? Because I know there hasn't been a lot of announcement, a lot of talk about this yet, but can you let us know what some of that discussion or planning might be around what someone who's going to go up and watch the event can actually do while they're up there as well. So in the in the bid, one of the big parts of the bid was around um, trying to make this a weekend trip for for recreational runners and supporters of the sport to come up and run the course and to run on the on the, the same course that the, the world cross country runners were going to be running on. Um, in Bathurst and give it that sort of weekend feel and, a, and barbecues and a festival of cross-country running. That's that's one of the major selling points which we made to um, World Athletics and one of the, the major selling points to our own state bodies. Um, the, the viability of doing that will depend upon, um, in the COVID period, will depend upon um, what, what sort of restrictions are in place and when they get dropped. So, you know, unfortunately for, for administrators, um, you're always having to think about uh, what is the economic cost of doing something because you can only spend money you have, otherwise you're going into debt and no one wants to leave um, the Athletics Australia body or any organisation with debt. So we can only, we can only deliver facilities and programs and events which we can fund. So until we have the full picture from government around when people would be able to enter the country, um, how long they'd be able to stay, uh, it's quite hard to, to nail down all these issues. 
So the reason you're probably not getting that much information out is because the, the organising committee is working on so many different contingencies. Um, and if we can, you know, if we can deliver everything that we've hoped, then, you know, we, we want to see a festival of cross country. We want people coming and spending a weekend at Bathurst, just the same way they would for the for the for the major car race, and camping out and um, bringing their kids and their families and being able to run on the course and having events that are rolling across a weekend. But that will again depend upon what um, and and how soon some of these restrictions drop. You'd have to be pretty optimistic, though, wouldn't you, Mark, at this point in time, given there we're just into May now and the event will be late March. You'd want to think that uh, at least there'd be interstate travel and hopefully a fair, fair degree of international travel uh, operating by then. But yet again, we can't tell yet, can we? It's hard. It's very hard. And all, I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of events in this country, um, major events, which are in jeopardy and in doubt at the moment. Um, we're very hopeful that the world cross country will be able to go ahead because we do have a fair bit of lead time. Um, but no one so far has been able to estimate how long um, it's going to take to roll back the international travel restrictions. And we have to at the same time work with health policymakers to ensure that we provide a, health, a healthy and safe um, event. Um, that will impact upon spectators uh, and no one knows um, whether we're going to have a second wave of um, the, COVID, the COVID virus or there'll be outbreaks in future. Um, and, and this is, so from a, when, you, when you talk to the, the, the health professionals and policymakers, it's a, a real, they make a decision and then they watch and monitor to see what the impact is. And it's an iterative you know, you'd call it iterative policy making that they're, they're um, rapidly changing and evolving. And I think it's very difficult to say one way or the other what will be happening. Thank goodness it's, you know, March next year. And hopefully, you know, when, when we get the European summer, um, it clears up a great deal of the, the virus in the US and, and in Europe and the big teams get a good lead up into into broad cross country and hopefully Africa and, and other parts of Asia, um, the virus is, doesn't take off um, and, and therefore their teams are available and, and eager to travel. Yeah, it was interesting. I heard a comment from the Japanese Prime Minister, I think, saying that if 2021 Tokyo doesn't get ahead, then they're canning. And, it was, and I just found it, considering the, the amount of time it took for them to make the big call on, on cancelling 2020, actually allude to 2021 not going ahead i found that uh quite an interesting comment actually from someone in, uh you know with a high position yeah so we, when you're when you're a a, 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 a policy maker you have to look at all contingencies and they're being asked about that contingency what happens if the if the outbreak continues into next year and they can't Get it under control, or they can't guarantee their their the, the integrity of the or the safety of the the athletes and the spectators. You know, they have to look at that, and that becomes extraordinarily complex when you look at all the commercial arrangements that they would have in place. Whether it's the athletes' village, whether it's the sponsorship, um, you know, the the cost of the cost of of postponing the event is exorbitant. It's I just think it's massive. I think the interesting thing there, Crosby, was um, something that we've spoken about before on the podcast where one headline gets the most press and the uh, the full quote doesn't always get uh, filtered out there. And um, it was interesting because Shinzo Abe, the Japanese Prime Minister, got asked to comment on what was that initial comment from Yoshihiro Mori, who's the president of Tokyo 2020 Group. Um, and Abe said, like verbatim, he said, the Olympic Games must be held in a way that shows the world has won its battle against the coronavirus pandemic. Otherwise, it will be difficult to hold them. Um, he said, we've been saying we will hold the Olympics and Paralympics in which athletes and spectators can participate safely and in a complete form. Um, I think they cannot be held in a complete form uh, if the pandemic is not contained. So I felt, I feel like he gave a, like a, a stark but sort of, wary a statement, whereas Maury, when asked whether the Games could be delayed until 2022, 
replied literally, no, in that case, it's cancelled. So I think it was a, a really interesting um, sort of juxtaposition of one guy who's the president of the country, or the prime minister of the country, sorry, and another guy who's probably pretty stressed and is in charge of the organising committee trying to give um, maybe two different tiers of answer there. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The, the, the PM urging calm, the head of the local organising committee just saying he's out enough, he's ready to throw it in. <laughs> so. But the, the, the good bit is everyone is fully committed. Yeah. Whether it's, you, know, you talk to someone like John Coates who's running the, the Tokyo um, games from the from the IOC level. Yeah. And, you know, the view is we are, we are going ahead. Mm. We are going to make this work. We will doesn't matter what the challenge is we will overcome it yeah so you know i think there's i think there's a good chance that by that stage it will definitely be going ahead and um you know we're gonna have to be i guess we'll have to be agile in terms of our decision making to and flexible as possible yeah and that is a really interesting point because i guess you know you've had more experience in this than uh myself with him but even in the very early stages of um the pandemic i know we were sort of trying to weigh up, you know, that public sentiment of, oh, you know, world athletics or the, the higher-ups of any governing you know more than they're letting on, that, you know, you see a press conference and you might have had someone like Sedco present, you know, pretty bluntly and saying that they didn't know much more. But I guess from your end, have you found that sometimes it is actually the case where when you've got a problem that's particularly large like this, you might be waiting on the instructions from someone like a World Health Organisation? Without doubt, yeah. The, I, mean, I, I spoke to doctors months ago about what they thought was going to happen with COVID, and, and most of them thought it was going to be like SARS. You know, it would be a there'd be an outbreak, and then it would be contained, and then you know, like like a lot of viruses, it would either burn out um, or dissipate over time. And no one I spoke to put this as a put this as a, um, in the medical fraternity, put yeah. this as a likely scenario. There was obviously a scenario, but it wasn't something that people thought would happen. Mm. Um, so, yes, you're right. You, you know, and and you can put a lot of weight into expertise, but, mm. you know, sometimes even the experts are confounded. And, <laughs> and, 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 and that's just the way, that, that's life. And when you're dealing with a virus like this, um, it's rewriting the rules. Yeah. Uh, talk to talk to the medical specialists, and they see things every day, and they say they they're surprised themselves. So um, it it's been difficult, and and for most for most of those health professionals, it sounds like um, they've never dealt with anything like this before. Yeah, and I know we've jumped a bit in topic here, but to um to, to bring you back to the, the initial one we pitched um on just back on the Bathurst front. Um, I know you and, and Athletics Australia have spoken recently about um, that sort of legacy planning aspect as well. Um, is, is there much that you can mention about, you know, what you'd hope to see either in Ballarat, oh, sorry, Ballarat, Bathurst or, or New South Wales itself following the event? From, from our perspective, the legacy is around um, kids and the community being energised by the sport of running and, and cross country and trail running in particular, um, we just, you know, cross country is a sport where every almost every child in the country gets an opportunity to be involved in cross country through their school, and you see the joy of these kids running in cross country and um, getting involved in it and. Um, we want to ensure that what we're trying to do and what we were hoping to do and hope we'll be able to do is give those kids an opportunity to see some of the best runners in the world come out and for them to sort of look at that, the Australian team and get behind them and, and feel impassioned about running and um, support our athletes and hopefully our athletes, and I think they will do well yeah. um, on the course, and that they get a love of the sport and want to be involved in running for life. That, that's really what it's about and why we why we wanted to bid and, and get the, the event to Australia. So hopefully um, we can we can get on with doing that. Brilliant. 
I'll just put it out there, Mark. Has AA got any plans for bidding for any other major events? Yeah. We'd love to bid for the for either the the World Track and Field Championships or a Junior Track and Field Championships. The the issue for any for any national association, and, and then also we've had discussions with governments about it. Every now and then, a, go, a state government will say to us would like to, to do that and, and would you be interested in partnering with us? And so a lot of the times we start those conversations, but the, the level of funding to bring an event like that to Australia is so high. It's, it's you know, you're talking about tens of millions of dollars and for, many, for most of those state governments, um, they have other priorities and they require funding for health and for education and that sort of money is difficult to justify and, and that's that's the biggest problem so yes we would be very interested in in bringing out those sort of events and we have in, in you know come close to working on bids with states but at the same time we've got to find a way to be able to do it financially and also we've got to find a way to, to fit it into a window which would you know probably be competing with afl and and that's one of the large problems when you look at the months um, you'd have to hold a World Track and Field Championships. You end up, you end up looking at August, September, October, and um, what happens in those three months? Footy finals. So that's that's the, that's one of the biggest issues. It's getting getting a a, um, a venue that would be locked down for for many months. Uh, that's oval size. Yeah, some very good points there. Thanks so much, Mark. That's been a great conversation, not only on uh, Bathurst, but also some of the broader issues around uh, the disease and Tokyo and various other things. So very good insights. All right, a big thank you to Mark Bibb for his contributions to the Down the Track podcast this week. Uh, Mark, I hope you've enjoyed the little chat with Sean and myself. That's been great. And thanks, thanks for the work you gentlemen do to get the word out there on our sport. We need more of it. Yeah, it's an enjoyable little task, isn't it, Sean? Now, Sean, I did give you a uh, project. You had to delve into the number 38 <laughs> for me. So Was it 37? Sorry, 37. I've got 38. Yeah. I'm working on it. Um, the, yeah, the, you last week went with a bit more of a historical pitch for prior Olympics. The only thing I could suggest to those of curious of the 37 elk Um was probably Kenanisa Bikili's 5K world record, which is 12.37 point. I can't remember the decimals. Um if anyone's curious, this this was rather peak running nerdism, but it was held at this little meet in Holland um, a number of years ago, I think 2006. And the problem was for ATS nerds for years and years, it was stuck under some sort of copyright rule where they couldn't put it in. And um, a couple of years ago, it, it popped up online. Um, and for anyone that's new to the sport or might not have heard of this Bikili guy or you've only seen him run a marathon, I would implore you, flick back, chuck it on. It's on YouTube. Um, and there's a very tall Australian guy who pops up at the start of it arguing about lane draw and leg numbers. Uh, Craig Moxham was in the race and was making sure he's in the right spot. Um, but, yeah, it's a fascinating run from Bikili largely because Pacer is well off and does a really poor job at the start to the point where Bikili pretty much just tells him about, I think it's about 1,500 metres in, just tells him to bugger off um, and precisely demolish the last two-thirds of the race. Um, and, yeah, this, this was really where, you know, anyone that was very excited for, I guess, a London marathon or something this year and thought, geez, this Bikili guy is taking another marathon eventually. Um, this does give you a bit of backstory on, you know, why this guy was so hyped when he decided to continue things onwards to the roads um, and, you know, ran a world record that still stands for both 5,000 and 10,000 metres. Yeah, and um, 12.37, you know, when you do the maths on that, that's sub-61 second laps for 12 and a half laps. It's, uh, that's fine. Oh, yeah, that's like, and the same thing with this 10,000 metre world record. I remember one of the years they had the pre-classic and there was a prominent American, Chris Derrick, who had run a PB on the day and he was, he was a Stanford grad and he was, he was pretty hyped that, you know, he'd gone pro and done so well in transitioning over and, uh, you know, he, he was always he's always been regarded as someone who's quite quick on his feet in interviews and they asked him what, what he thought of running 1309, which was, you know, an outstanding 5,000 metre time. Um, and he said it was just a little bit depressing that it was about on for the split that Bikili had at halfway in his 10,000 metre world record. Um, so, you know, even these top professionals were 
quite in awe of the guy and, and still are, given he was only two seconds off the uh, marathon world record when he got everything right. So, anyone uh, got any spare time, which a few of us do seem to in this period of isolation, um, YouTube can be a, a useful resource. Excellent. I've got a number to throw at you, Mark Bib. The number is number 31. Do you know what that represents? Mate, you can please enlighten me. Yeah, it's, it's the uh, the number of times Melbourne Storm have played the Sydney uh, South Sydney <laughs> Rabbitohs, and do you know what the win loss ratio is? No, throw it right out there. Twenty six five at the moment. Twenty six to the Storm, so go Storm! I thought you well, well done, Melbourne no, Storm. Yeah, well, well done, Crosby. The only bloke in the office that wanders out on Thursday with the scarf on, Crosby, where are you going? I'm going to the rugby, everyone. Oh, that was on. Yeah. All right, um, that's, a, that's a wrap on um, episode number 37. Thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate you giving us your time. I know you are a very, very busy man. Sean Whip, you're not so busy, but thanks once again for coming on board. Thanks, Tim. See you, guys.